Janet Yellen is in, so we're all saved. You're in the right place, folks, because this is where the money is. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Copenheffer. Right here next to me is David Hansen. David, on CNN this morning, I saw the headline, Angry Dennis Rodman Defends North Korea Basketball Game. I challenge you, come up with a weirder sports headline than that. Weirder sports headline than Angry Dennis Rodman Challenges North Korea. Dennis Rodman does something normal. That would be the weirdest That, that would be pretty weird. That guy's just, he's awesome. Awesome is the word. Here's what I came up with. Top badmintoner challenges King James to shuffleboard showdown. Then punches his grandma in the (laughs) face. You you would click on that, wouldn't you? I would. You would click on that. Anything having to do with King James, you're a big LeBron James fan. First headline of the day comes from the Wall Street Journal, and of course it is. Yellen confirmed as Fed chief. Uh, Yeah, Janet Yellen was confirmed. is Is there anything new to take away from this? I don't think so. I was... Kind of surprised to see 26 people voted against her. Don't know what they have, what their problem is with her. But yeah, we knew this was coming. And again, you don't know what the problem is. Yeah, what's the problem? You, you, you she really seems like a nice lady. She seems. Yeah, there you go. She seems like a nice lady. It wasn't just that 26 voted against her. That there were a lot of absten- abstentions mm-hmm. from this vote. This was a very. I wouldn't say it was a tight vote per se, but it was way closer than Bernanke. And uh, there's a another article, I think it was on Bloomberg or something, talking about how this is a sign of the politici- politicization. Mm-hmm. Is that how you say that? Politicization sure. of the Federal Reserve uh, in this chairman spot. And I do, I understand why people are voting against her, particularly on the Republican side of the aisle, that they see her as an extension of the easy money policies. That and I shouldn't put that in quotes because it's kind of it's it's true. Mm-hmm. Easy money, you get money cheap. It's easy money uh, that Bernanke has sort of championed here. I don't disagree with it. I think with the go- with, with, with the with the federal government uh, and actually state governments as well, continuing to look to to um, optimize, we can say the budget, mm-hmm. trim the budget uh, at a time when the economy is trying to recover. I think the Fed is just trying to, to, to use monetary policy to the extent that it possibly can to boost the economy. So far, I would say that it seems like it's working because we've had uh, a federal government and a state government drag on GDP, mm-hmm. drag on employment, drag on hiring. Basically, since the, um, s- since the all, all during the recovery, mm-hmm. and yet we've recovered, I would argue that Bernanke's policies and the Fed's policies have had something to do with that. Not everybody sees it that way. Yeah, she'll she'll certainly be an important person in history and in financial history. We've said on this show before, it'll be a while before we can judge her whether she does a really good job. It usually takes five years after the person has resigned as Fed chief. How long before we can judge Bernanke? Mm -hmm. We already can, right? We, we can judge him. I don't know if it's correct, but probably five, <laughs> ten years. But right. like you, I, I agreed with most of what they did. Most of it. Most of it. Not all of it. You all would right. have done differently. Slightly <laughs> differently. All right. Second headline of the day. Also not a huge surprise here. We are expecting this. J.P. Morgan settles Madoff fraud claims for $1.7 billion. That's an impactful headline. In Very general. red. That's from the AP. Uh, so $1.7. We had mentioned that it was reportedly around $2 billion, So got it pretty close. They are reserved for this. This gets them kind of done with that legal quagmire, if you will. They still have some more on their checklist. But this was one. Of, this was a fairly big one. I mean, two billion dollars. It doesn't sound like a lot in the context of that they paid thirteen billion, but that's still a pretty hefty settlement. So one more that they can check off their list. 
not great for shareholders, but moving forward, it's, it's done now. I think it'll be interesting the extent to which... I mean, it's, it's important the extent to which banks have moved away from doing the kinds of things that have gotten them into this hot water. But it's important to remember, and, and I guess I say this every time, but that the settlements that are getting paid out now, this was all from five years ago, six years, seven years ago, actions that took place in that sort of time frame. I guess the London whale uh, mm-hmm. notwithstanding. But it'll be interesting to see at what point investors pivot beyond looking at banks as constantly the subject of billion-dollar settlements. Mm -hmm. Because it it hasn't always been the case. And prior to the financial crisis, it wasn't. So um, we don't have any guarantee that banks aren't doing the same things today that they were before. You'd hope that they would have learned that billions and billions of dollars would have taught them a little something. Uh, We'd hope that would happen, but then it will be interesting to see at what point investors start to trust them again based on valuations um, I mean, that's a combination of expectations for earnings for banks, but also the settlement thing. Uh, be interesting to see when that trust comes back. It will be interesting. Yeah, so, I, I think it's come back a little bit. I, that's why you don't see the stock impacted during announcements like this. I think people realize this is coming. I think people realize they're reserved for it. So the, the valuations, maybe they're depressed because of this and earnings power. But I think that trust has come back a little bit from where it was. Third headline, we've got Bloomberg here, and the headline is Berkshire stakes name on realty business, Buffett barely noticed. Yes, this is referring to Berkshire Hathaway Home Services. You might see their signs up now. And the article is saying how it's odd that Berkshire's put their name on one of these smaller businesses. Obviously, Berkshire has a lot of businesses under their umbrella. They usually don't rebrand them as Berkshire, etc. So small business here, not really material to the overall earnings power of Berkshire in and of itself. I had a question for you is, as a shareholder of Berkshire, how do you view those other businesses that we don't get a ton of detail on, but we know are under the umbrella? Do you just kind of put confidence in Buffett and the management team that they're going to make good acquisitions and that it's going to grow over time? Or how, how do you see that? So when you say other, you mean all of the other? Like well, 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 let's exclude... NetJets. Let's like, exclu- yeah, let's exclude Geico, the, the reinsurance business, mm-hmm. uh, MidAmerican, all those big ones. But NetJets, just- Justin Brands, Brooks, right. uh, all those. Yeah, well, I mean, a large part of it is Buffett knowing what a good business looks like. And he's not going to get it right every time. Mm-hmm. In the investing portfolio, he hasn't gotten it right every time. Um, and... Uh, I mean, that's the jockey play is a big part of the, the story at Berkshire Hathaway, and that's why people are so concerned about what happens when Buffett's there, mm-hmm. not there anymore. That's a different story. We won't touch that right now. But in terms of buying and owning these businesses, yeah, he, he's got this portfolio uh, of publicly traded stocks that we know a heck of a lot about. Mm-hmm. We have an investing track record from him that even though he's known as a value investor, He's proven, I think if you really study his, his track record, his history, that he invests in really great companies and owns them for really long periods of time. So it's the same strategy for his, uh, for Berkshire's, I should say Berkshire's, publicly traded companies really as it is for the privately held companies. Mm-hmm. Buy good businesses, own them for a very long time. All right, fair so enough. That's how I think about it. The other thing I'll say about this is that I, I think it's interesting and I think it's smart since Buffett has gotten such a brand name for himself, and by extension, Ber- Berkshire has, has gotten more of a brand name for itself. It never really, it didn't have that as much in the past. So to test this out, 
to see what the Berkshire can what Berkshire can do the Berkshire mm-hmm. can do as a brand as a consumer facing as a customer facing brand I, I think that's a, an interesting step forward. Yeah, the, I think there's some pros and cons. The re- realtor that they were quoting in the article, they say it's it's kind of nice to say that, yeah, we're kind of owned by Warren Buffett. People like to hear that. But then the con is that if business doesn't go so great, reputation goes down, it may hurt the brand. So, yeah, could be good, could be bad. We'll see. Okay, moving on to the focus for today. This is it, – it's going to – it's a little bit odd that we'd be talking about CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, mm-hmm. given that we focus on finance – but it's also not that odd because the, the nature of the finance business has been transformed because of technology, because of, uh, uh, because of smartphones, because of the Internet. And so we took a look at, at some of the, the companies that are exhibiting at CES mm-hmm. uh, to, get some, to, to get some ideas for, for what's next and, and, and where things are moving and how that might affect banks and financial companies. And I'll start off with, with one that caught my eye. The name of the company is uh, Bizarre Voice, and that's B-A-Z-A-A-R, not bizarre like weird. Right. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> That might be, a, I don't know, is that like a voice transformation thing? It could bizarre be. Bizarre Voice. Bizarre Voice, it's, it's a, cus- a consumer ratings kind of thing where, um, and I'm not going to do the company probably justice of describing the business here. That's not what I'm shooting for. Consumer ratings. So consumers providing other consumers with ratings on goods and services um, this is something that we're that we're just seeing explode and and Yelp is a great example of that Yelp is a fantastic example of that um, I point that out in particular because I am an avid user of Yelp I don't go to too many restaurants without checking as well. a Yelp rating so the thing that this makes me think about as more consumers are turning to these kind of uh, digital services as it becomes easier for people to uh, communicate with each other and, and share opinions and share views on goods and services, I think it makes it that much more important that banks work on their reputation, work on every time they touch a customer, mm-hmm. that that's going to be a good experience. Because to the extent that you... Yeah, I, I can't really think of something that, that has this for banks and financial services companies yet. Mm-mm. But I would imagine that that's got to be on the way. Right. And the more disgruntled customers you have, the more bad reviews you have showing up. And the flip side to that, we've talked a few times on this show about uh, credit unions, about smaller banks and consumers using those. And one of the things I've argued is that big banks are in people's face a lot more. Uh, They have a a, a larger presence and they have more advertising. But what something like this uh, could potentially do is when I go to a new city, I don't have to go to an Applebee's, I don't have to go to a TGI Friday's to get a reliable good meal. Um, not that those are necessarily good meals, but they're reliable in some they way. They are reliable. <laughs> they're reliable. I know what I'm getting. I can go on Yelp and I can find the hole-in-the-wall place or the small mom-and-pop place that has delicious food because I've got Yelp. And I think people will be able to do that more and more with, uh, with financial services. And that's a threat to, to the banks that aren't really paying attention to what their customers are saying. All right. The, the company that I, that I kind of grabbed my eye was SmartFlows. And this is a company that tracks consumer flows in stores. So their true target is retailers in malls. And <laughs> so I think the way it works is you have your cell phone in your pocket. They have little trackers in the corners of the store, and it tracks 
where people are going, where people are being held up, where's drawing the most traffic in the store. Well, that doesn't have any privacy concerns. Well, it doesn't say Matt is right there. It just says there's a person right there. And they give the the company heat maps of kind of where people are staying, where people are getting piled up at their cash register. So the target is for kind of retailers, but I think it has a use in bank branches too, kind of see which branches are seeing the the biggest flows, where are the waits the longest for branches, where can you pare back staff. Um, And you look at comments from... Bill, Bill Demchak of PNC, he says, I think we're in the first inning of kind of the retail banking transformation, the first inning. Uh, so they're transforming their retail branches to, to kind of understand what people are doing, what are people wanting with their branch. The smart branch. Do, do they actually the smart, call it the smart branch? I don't know if they do, but they're trying to the get smarter smart with Smart home, branches. smart branch. And, I mean, it isn't just PNC. You look at Bank of America, they have their branch count. They're trying to reduce that, but they're not just getting rid of it to get rid of it. They're trying to get smarter with their branch count. Brian Moynihan at a recent conference said, 8 million people still go into a branch every week. 8 million. That's everyone in New York City going to a Bank of America branch every week. Um, and 47% of those people going into the, into the bank branches are what they call high-opportunity customers. So it's either wealthy preferred customers, high-net-worth customers, small business customers. So 47% of that 8 million are still coming into the branch. Technology that helps them understand kind of who's coming in, where are they going, are they having a good experience. I think that can really help the banks in terms of cutting costs and also just helping that satisfaction like you were saying. Well, yeah, and, and to connect that a little bit more even, you're talking about the high opportunity customers. Another thing with the, with the consumer, the customer satisfaction, is to make sure that there's, for the banks to think about, make sure they're serving the right customers. Mm-hmm. Because it's easy for a bank to go out there and want to try to capture every customer. But not every customer is high opportunity. Mm-hmm. Not every customer is even an opportunity. Right. And to the extent that they're reeling in people that, that really aren't uh, tailor-made for their services or their services aren't made for those people, the more you're going to end up with, with bad customer experiences. Yep. Another, another uh, company that's uh, at CES that I'll point out called BitPay. Of course. We talked a bunch about uh, Bitcoin on this show. This is, this is a, a company that's allowing businesses to more easily accept Bitcoin. Uh, I thought this was interesting. They, on their website, they, they say it's a way to reduce risk, which is pretty neat. Mm-hmm. It says, with BitPay, you can eliminate the risk of fraud, chargebacks, and identity theft from internet payments, which is pretty true. You don't have to worry about that when you're paying with Bitcoin. Uh, they offer a direct deposit settlement, uh, BitPay does, direct deposit settlement, on a daily basis, every business day, in, uh, in local currency. I don't think they do it with all local currency. So you're still subject to the daily fluctuations, but you don't still have to hold it for... Exactly. So that kind of addresses the idea of I don't want to hold Bitcoin for mm-hmm. uh, a week and, and worry about where it's going to go. However, uh, they list some of the companies that are, that are using BitPay, and you can see that the, that the uh, acceptance of using this kind of thing isn't quite out there. Some of the companies were Grass Hill Alpacas... Hot Tub Barn, and Knives for Bitcoin. Hot Tub Barn. There you go. Interesting. All right, moving on to the mailbag. Uh, we have an email address. It's WTMI at Fool.com. We love, 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 love getting emails. We do. Um, and here is one of the emails that we recently received. This is from Richard in Ireland. We're global, David. Uh, in regard to your Best Ideas podcast, As I Have Limited Funds, would you recommend spreading it thinly across nine stocks or selecting just three to five of them to invest in. In general, is it better to stick with a portfolio of 20-ish stocks rather than spread your money too thinly on, say, 40 stocks? David, how many stocks do you have in your portfolio? Um, 
couldn't tell you the exact amount, but I think twenty. Is it is it closer to? It's closer it clo- to twenty. It's closer to twenty. Closer to twenty. Okay. Yes. So are we going to address that part of the question and circle back? Let's do that. Sure. Let's, let's circle back. So yeah, I. I have around 20 or so. I think you have more, but we've talked about it on the show that I think it really depends on how much you're putting in in each stock. If you have kind of your core holdings, which 50% of your portfolio is in eight stocks, mm-hmm. and then you have really small positions in a bunch of other stocks, that's fine. If you want to learn more about those companies, maybe make those bigger positions. But to me, if you're going to have 40 positions evenly spread out, to me, that's a little too thin. I don't think you can really have a good understanding of kind of the business, the management team, where it's going if you're spread evenly amongst 40. But if you have 20 stocks that are pretty concentrated and then 20 others that are pretty small positions, I think that's okay. This is uh, – one of the things that I'll point out too is that it doesn't have to be an all or nothing type of thing. And this, mm-hmm. is, this is something that one of our, one of our WTMIers emailed us, about, e- emailed us about and said, you don't have to just index or just – uh, invest in individual stocks, and that's very true, and that's actually the way I approach it. So you don't have to even think about, do I need 40 or 20 positions? You could have five positions mm-hmm. in individual stocks and then do some investing in index funds and have that kind of mix and get some diversification that way. I, I think some, some key questions to ask in terms of how many stocks should you have, how much time do you have to follow them? Mm-hmm. You're, that's what you were getting at is if you don't have a lot of time to follow the stocks, you can't have 40 stocks and really know what's going on with those companies. Mm-hmm. Even 20 may be a challenge if you're really time-strapped. But if you love investing and you spend a lot of time with it as a hobby, that's uh, more doable. Uh, what kind of approach are you taking? If it's, uh, I, I sometimes, I, I have a portfolio where I have just stocks that are trading at very low price-to-book price to ratios. It's sort of like a mechanical portfolio. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have to spend much time with that because it's very mechanical. It's a small part of my portfolio, but that allows you more stocks, less time. And maybe most importantly, uh, what will allow you to sleep well and what will keep you from making stupid mistakes? So if if you uh, invest in such a way that you're going to be nervous all the time about what you're invested in, there's more of a chance that the the psychological things that make us do stupid things as investors, that those will take over and you'll do something that you shouldn't be doing. Mm -hmm. All right, to get to his question in terms of our best ideas, he says that he's a kind of amateur investor, doesn't have a lot of funds. I, if it were me, I would focus on just a couple of them, three or four of them. Particularly because they're all in one industry, right? Correct. Um, and, and just to, to learn more about those, if he says he's a new investor, an amateur investor, I would learn about a Markel, read the annual report, learn about the business. PNC, listen to the conference calls, Markel's listen to the very leaders. readable report, by the way. Exactly. So I, I would look at companies like that and say, okay, if I feel comfortable investing, great, and then I'm going to learn more about the business. I think that's much more manageable than buying nine stocks and kind of just leaving it at that. I'll leave it at that. All right. <laughs> uh, going on to the game for today, we have a little bit of would you rather. So we've got three scenarios here. The idea is just tell me, and I'll tell you, what you would rather do, one or the other. First right. one we have. Would you rather own a basket of Canadian or Chinese bank stocks? Very interesting question. I know. I made it. You're, very inter- you're a very interesting person. I am a very interesting um, person. Are you making fun of me for saying interesting a lot? No. Um, this was, this was a tough decision. I didn't know. Uh, Chinese banks, obviously I'm not very comfortable with them. You don't get a ton of disclosure um, with kind of maybe not the banks itself, but the economy over there as a whole, whether it's the central bank, the government. Uh, but they're cheap. Chinese banks are really cheap right now. Uh, the economy's slowing down. Uh, I, I think most of them are kind of, 
the banking sector as a whole is trading at a discount to book value. So they're not expensive. When you look at the Canadian banks, they look expensive on paper, most of them over two times book value. And you could argue that that economy could be slowing um, from the great pace it's had in the housing market. Um, But I got to go with the Canadian banks. And We've been somewhat critical of them as an investment. I'm not calling that there's going to be a Canadian banking crisis by any means. The valuations don't look great today, but compared to disclosures that you get with Chinese banks and the kind of the unknowns over there, I'd rather go with Canadians. Uh, Canadian banks, hands down for me. We've gotten some some feedback from the WTMI community that maybe we're a little bit too bearish on Canadian banks. Maybe that's possible. I'm still not crazy about Canadian banks compared to a lot of what what else is out there available right now. But government. The two, the two different governments in the two different countries, uh, the disclosures that you referred to, uh, there's just they're hands down for me. If I'm getting a basket of either or, it's Canadian banks. And if we, I mentioned the, the around 20% discount. That sounds like a big discount when you look at two times. But during the financial crisis, banks traded down to 50% discount. So it could go lower. There you go. Next scenario. Next scenario, indeed. Uh, would you rather own a basket of banks or mortgage REITs? Thought about the mortgage REITs. I do own Annaly Capital, and I like what they're doing now. I think they have the right mindset going forward. It was obviously a tough year in 2013. Very tough. Um, I think they have the, the portfolio well positioned. But outside of Annaly, I don't get crazy about a lot of the mortgage REITs. I know you like two harbors, but I'm going with the banks. Evaluations still look attractive to me. What do you think? I hate, I hate, I should have designed these so that we wouldn't agree. But yeah, I'm going to agree with you. Uh, I prefer the banks, mortgage REITs in general. It's not a business that I'm crazy about. Banking, classic business. Um, I think that there are a lot of good banks to own right now uh, and a lot of very reasonable valuations. Some reasonable valuations over on the mortgage REITs. Talk about Annaly, American Capital Agency. They're trading primarily the, the, the agency-backed paper that's, that's struggling the most mm-hmm. based on what the Fed's doing. Um, but, uh, and so they're trading at discounts because of that. Nevertheless, I'd rather own banks. If banks were trading at really lofty valuations, I could possibly say mortgage rates, but the valuations still look pretty attractive in the bank. They would have to be much higher than they are yep. today to get me to flip. Same. Uh, final one of the day. This it's is a little different one. Sort of a would you rather, but would you rather own blank instead of financials? So this is I a different rather. sector. <laughs> um, kind of sounds... I, I would rather. Okay, I can't read. I I'm can't going... Read it kind of sounds predictable, but I'm going with the big tech companies. I know a lot of people are saying that those look like they're pretty decent values right now. And it's hard to argue. Uh, Morgan was talking on the show yesterday how you look at a business like IBM, only 36% of IBM's revenue comes from the Americas. Mm-hmm. This is a global business trading around 12, 13 times earnings. Uh, IBM, Cisco, only 50% of the revenue in the Americas. I think you're getting a diversified business at a pretty reasonable price. So I'm going with the, the big tech companies. I will go with consumer. I'm just going to say consumer. Just I'm going to capture yeah people. <laughs> People. I'm going with people. I want to invest in people. Um, Consumer. Capture both the consumer discretionary and consumer staples. The reason that I say that is that I think it's very important to to be able to understand what it is that you're investing in. I do own some tech companies. I don't think it's, it's certainly not wrong to invest in tech companies. I don't have a full understanding of all of the trends and the, what's, what's going on and what's behind a lot of the tech companies mm-hmm. and their products. So that's not the best place for me to, to invest. I'd say the same thing about energy. There's a lot you need to understand in the energy industry to make really savvy investments there. Um, I think I could do a better job uh, analyzing and digesting consumer-based businesses. Cool. All right. Finishing off in the Twitter sphere, David, first tweet. 
first tweet is from Morgan Stanley. Morgan Stanley is number one in M&A for 2013 in EMEA, Japan, and Asia. Ex-Japan. And then they linked out to a thing. They don't just say read there. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> read. Go Morgan. read, dummy. Uh, <laughs> read something. Good year for Morgan Stanley. You're a shareholder, aren't you? Do you feel... I'm a, I'm a v- very small shareholder. When I referred earlier to that portfolio where I put little bits of money in, in very beaten down, that's how Morgan Stanley made it into my portfolio. I... They're okay. It's a decent year. But but still, I mean, they have to kind of finagle the rankings to get themselves into that number one spot there in those ever-important league rankings. I think we've talked about that before. Number mm-hmm. one still? Mm-hmm. Who is it? J.P. Morgan? No. Goldman Sachs. Oh. Goldman Sachs, number well, one. Well, it's always depends, like, based on fees, deals. Well, pretty much, <laughs> if you look across the board, number one based on just about anything, Goldman Sachs. I'm going to start a rankings business where you just, like, pay to get ranked, and then it'll be like, oh, they're number one. Uh, I hate to tell you, but I think you... That's already... That's happening. J.P. Morgan, though, however, number two. Right All right. Goldman Sachs. Fair enough. Oh, is that just for that region, or are we saying globally? No, this is globally. All right. Yeah, well, in, in, the, in the specified little oh, region that... Okay. that, that uh, Morgan Stanley cut out. They are, in fact... All right, on to the important tweet. Okay, on to the important tweet. Next tweet. Happiest lamb ever. This is from at baby animal pics, and this is a follow-up to our yesterday's picture of a... Uh, panda. A panda. Look at that. Cute. We now have a baby lamb on the screen. Oh. So for those of you listening to the podcast... I'm really sorry. This is your motivation to get on YouTube, find the Motley Fool YouTube channel. We're on or, there. Or... You can watch us. Follow us on Twitter at TMF Financials, or get on our Facebook page, Motley Fool Financial Services Coverage. We will put this picture up on Twitter, up on Facebook. You can see that that is a cute lamb. That's a very good lamb. That's a really cute <laughs> lamb. All right. I think that's all we've got for today. That is all we got. <laughs> that's a good place to end. It is. Keeps you smiling. Mm-hmm. All right. Uh, I'm Matt Kopenheffer. This here is David Hansen, and we will see you tomorrow. People on the show may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against. Don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear.